You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us again open God's holy word, reading in the New Testament from the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 12. We'll just read part of the chapter, beginning at verse 14 and reading to the end. The text for the sermon will be from the scripture reading, the verses 22 through 24, but also verses 18 through 21 will come into the picture. So beginning reading at verse 14 in Hebrews 12. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that No further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels, in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removal of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, a key characteristic of reformed worship is that there is not very much to see in reformed worship, and probably that's not a surprise to us. We might recall that the reformation of worship came about during 
the great reformation of the 16th century. At that time, the Church of Rome had worship services where there was, where there was very much to see. In fact, most of the people in the churches could not understand the words of worship very much because the words of worship were spoken in Latin. That was not the common language of the people of the Lord. But there was a lot to see for the people gathered in worship. And we might remember here the words of one of our confessions, Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 35, speaking about images in the churches as as books for the laity. The laity, meaning the common people, they participated, they learned by seeing images, observing ritual. They participated not so much by hearing, but especially by seeing as as kind of spectators. Images and ceremony, pictures in the windows and clothing of the clergy, the bishops and the priests, and all kinds of activity of worship. It could all be quite an elaborate display as part of worship on Sunday. And then with the reformation of worship came a great shift in emphasis, a shift away from seeing, a shift towards hearing, hearing especially the word of God. People could hear in their own language and the level of participation of the congregation also increased. Besides in the hearing, also in the singing and and in being able to follow the prayers. So the reformation of worship took away the emphasis on seeing and spectating during worship and brought in the emphasis on God's people hearing and speaking and participating in worship. Now this direction set again by the reformers is not, is not something that they made up and it is not a, a certain direction set by some stern men who wanted to, to worship in a difficult way and who wanted worship to be a little bit more boring. Now, this came out of the Word of God. And what came out of the Word of God was a very welcome change for for the people of God. God's people were were thrilled to again be able to hear and understand. The saints of God were not content with images and ceremony and ritual and things to be touched. This is not to say that there is nothing visual or tangible at all in Reformed worship. There is, very simply, very soberly, in the sacraments as instituted by Christ, visible signs and seals of covenant promises and divine love. Those are given to underline the truth of God's word. Sacraments given to underline the things spoken and heard. The reason why this was such a thrilling and important reform, the reform of worship, is because of what the worship service is. The worship service is a meeting between God and His people. 
meeting between God and his people. And what the Roman Catholic Church had done over the centuries what was to put things, ritual images, to put things and to put people, the clergy, in the way between God and his people. So that God and his people were not really meeting, but God's people were watching the clergy meeting with God. Sure, there were things for the people to see and in a sense touch with their eyes, but none of that brought them really nearer to God or God nearer to them. They were kept at a distance and God was kind of kept at a distance. So when God's people could hear him again in his word with their own ears, offering praise with their own mouths without any distance, without any interference. It was it was a thrill for God's people in the time of the Reformation. The Reformation of worship brings back to light the essence of worship, God meeting with his people for blessing, for comfort, for forgiveness, for direction, for assurance of salvation. God coming near and his people coming near to him. Reformed worship, not something for us to take for granted, not something for us to to give up, something to also diligently teach the next generation. Now, the letter to the Hebrews has much to say about worship, not least in the words of the text. That this text is about worship is made clear by a number of things. We can mention a few. The first words of the text, verse 22 but you have come to Mount Zion. The words you have come to can also be read as you have you have approached, as in approaching the place of worship. They are the same words we see at the beginning of verse 18, where it says you have not come to, or you have not approached, and then we can fill in Mount Sinai. You have not approached, but you have approached. Those are words for worship. That this is about worship is also seen in the place which is mentioned here in the text. We read of Mount Zion and about the city, Jerusalem. That would all right away in the, in the days of the text when Hebrews was written, that would all still speak very much of the center of worship for God's people through many ages. The place is the place of Worship. And also when we look at what comes just before the text in the verses 18 through 21, we'll see a little bit more of that in a minute. We see there Israel's formative and supreme worship service at Mount Sinai. The meeting of God with his people Israel at Mount Sinai. Something that became, became a regular part of worship you could say Mount Sinai duplicated in regular tabernacle worship. So since that, verses 18 through 21, since that's what the text is being compared to, this worship at Mount Sinai, compared to and contrasted with, we can also say that the text must then be about worship or worship service. It is important for understanding the force of the text to see it in light of what came just before in chapter 12. 
Verse 22 says, but you have come. And that is meant to stand in direct contrast to verse 18. You have not come. So verse 18, you have not come here. Verse 22, but you have come here. So we have to look first at what comes before the text, verses 18 through 21, God and his people Israel at Mount Sinai. Right away in those verses, we would see that there is a lot of description there. It's very descriptive in terms of what can be seen and what was experienced by Israel at Mount Sinai. And that's also the purpose of those verses, You have not come to a mountain which can be touched. Even though Israel could not exactly touch it, which is the crucial irony that's being played out here, even though Israel could not exactly touch it, it was something very concrete before Israel's eyes, Mount Sinai. There were sounds from the mountain and sights from the mountain. Blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a storm and the blast of a trumpet and divine words too much to bear. Verse 21 says it was, it was a sight terrifying even for Moses, the mediator of the old covenant. Now all of that description says two things. There was lots to see and to touch and to hear directly from heaven at Mount Sinai. And yet, it could not be seen and touched and heard by God's people in the sense that, as as it says in, in the Word of God, it was all too much to bear. Mount Sinai, when God came near to his people, The emphasis is actually on the distance that there had to be between God and his people. God is here, yes, and we are near, yes, but we cannot be close to God. This is because of sin. The holy God and his sinful people cannot be in one place without some serious separation in that place. Now, just paying attention to that, you, you, you would see that, that the Roman Catholic Church was also virtually replicating this over the years, going back to a kind of Sinai form of worship, keeping distance between God and His people. Even in the midst of all that could be seen and touched and heard in a worship service, there was a great separation. And this, what we read in Hebrews 12, is also a warning to the people to whom the letter to the Hebrews was being written. There was a danger for them to get stuck on what could be seen and touched in Jerusalem at the temple. The reminder of verses 18 through 21 in Hebrews 12 is is to say, remember God's people, remember, even in the nearness of God in Jerusalem, there is a constant separation from God. There are the courts with the walls of separation. There is always the veil in front of the Holy of Holies. Temple worship is, when all is said and done, 
Temple worship is worship at a place of perpetual distance between God and his people. And that goes all the way back to Mount Sinai. What happened way back at Mount Sinai came to be institutionalized, made official and ongoing in the tabernacle and later in the temple. God dwelling with his people, his people dwelling near to God, but only as far as a dividing wall and as far as a veil, as far as the curtain. But now you have come to Mount Zion. See, in contrast with verse 18, verse 22 shows the great advance for God's people today. But you have come to Mount Zion, that is, the city of the living God, that is, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, all of that is a description of the same thing, Mount Zion, city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem, with the living God in the center of that place. That is where we approach today. Now, there are a couple of things to be said about this. For God's people in the Old Testament, Mount Zion, the city of God, Jerusalem, was often a worship destination. It was a place towards which to move. So while God's people were wandering in the desert with the tabernacle, they sought a more permanent home in the land with a city and a temple. And while God's people lived in the land, they went often on pilgrimage to Mount Zion. It was a place of hope, of destiny. Because God himself was there, dwelling in the midst of his people. And yet, even in that permanence in the land, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the city, the temple, even that permanence had another better destination in mind. Even in the land, Mount Zion, the city, Jerusalem, was a shadow, a dim copy of the real and lasting dwelling of God with his people, where God himself is in the heavenly dimension. That would be the place to be reached, where there was no separation at all when sin was finally, definitively dealt with. And now, says the word of God, that destination has been reached by you in this time. You have come to the supreme place of worship, the heavenly one, the real one, where God himself is, the living God dwells there. Where we come to worship, we approach into heaven itself. Heaven opens up here on earth where we approach God. You have come finally to the real thing. No more copies, but the reality. But then there's also this second important element to this. You have come to the real place of worship, finally, the one that the earthly Mount Zion and city and Jerusalem was a copy of, was always waiting for the real one. But there is at the moment, there is at the moment much less to see and to touch 
of this destination of our worship. It is heavenly. It is in that other dimension. And that means our approach must be in faith and by the Spirit in a different way than it was for Israel. We can say Israel knew they had come to the real place of worship at the temple. They could see it. They could touch it. But we know we are at the real place of worship only by faith and not by sight. Only in the Spirit and not by touching anything. Now, we shouldn't be disappointed about that because we have come to the real place of worship. The other things were copies, the tabernacle, the the temple. We have come to the heavenly place itself from where the living word comes, as we can read in verse 25. Hopefully this all together also makes clear that to want to add things, to see and to touch in worship is to go backwards in worship. The real thing is in the heavenly dimension where you have come, where you cannot see, where you cannot touch. But it is more real for us than it was ever before for God's people. To add things to see, to add things to touch, is to trade the heavenly and permanent and real worship center for the earthly and passing away and not real things. And that cannot be satisfying, that cannot help, that cannot bring us nearer into the heavenly courts, into the presence of God himself. He is in the heavenly place. The only thing to bring us into the real place of worship with God is by true faith in the things that cannot be seen, cannot be touched, but only heard about from the word of God. Whenever we add things to really see, to really touch, it brings us really further away from the real place of worship. The reformers understood this keenly. And we must treasure again still what they could again bring to light out of the word of God. Besides speaking about the heavenly destination of our worship, the where of our worship, the text also speaks about the heavenly fellowship of our worship, the who. This is also to further underline to explain what it means for us today in our day, our age, to come in worship before God. You have approached not only a place, but a living fellowship. And again, with God in the center of that fellowship. The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, is not a barren and lonely place, You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. 
and to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God himself, the judge of all men, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. All of that is an elaborate description to emphasize that our worship, when and where we approach in worship, it is the real thing. This is the heavenly court. Not a few angels, cherubim, embroidered into the temple curtains. No, this is the heavenly place, full of heavenly things, people, beings, where God, the judge of all, is in the center, seated on his throne, and around him his chosen people and and the myriads of angels. Now, reading that, it is, in a way, a, a picture that reminds us of Mount Sinai, but clearly it doesn't have the tone of Mount Sinai at all. It it is a busy place, this heavenly place of worship, a busy place, a noisy place, but it is a different busy, different noisy. Instead of fire and darkness and gloom, instead of a mountain in a desert and terror and fear for those who were there, this this is a city of Many inhabitants, heavenly ones, and all of them close to God. There are men and angels surrounding God and no separation. And the people who are there are destined and prepared for heaven by the judge himself. They are enrolled. They are are written in the books. They belong there by grace. This is their inheritance. They are the firstborn. They are heirs of this. They are made perfect. They are prepared for just that place. Men with angels, angels with men, and all together with God, the judge of all. And no separation, no distance. You have come to a heavenly fellowship in the presence of God, the judge. And it is a place of welcome. It is not a place of fear or of separation. And again, just as with the destination of worship, the fellowship of our worship is seen and enjoyed by faith. We worship really in the presence of the angels, but we do not see them. We cannot touch them. We come into the presence of God the Judge with the saints of all times and all places. We do not see them. We do not touch them. By faith, we join them. By faith, we join them. A glorious heavenly dimension to our worship and a dimension which extends to all times and places and people of God. Worship reaches far and wide and high and deep. But we can only see that, only enjoy that by faith, not by sight, not by touch. Because the word of God spoken from out of that heavenly place shows it to our hearts in this earthly place and calls our hearts to join in up there.
lift up your hearts on high in heaven. And our hearts should rejoice to do so. The final part of the text speaks about Jesus and the heavenly blood. The sprinkled blood. Coming in worship, we also come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood. We have seen the where of our worship, the whom of our worship. Now we see the how or the why. How is it that that we are privileged to enter into the courts of heaven itself to worship the living God in His presence with all the heirs and the angels together? How is it that we can do that? It is because of Jesus. Because of His definitive work. The name Jesus here is related to the name Moses in verse 21. Moses, the mediator of the Old Covenant. Moses, the mediator between God and Israel, appointed by God himself. Even so, Moses could hardly stand in the place between God and his people. Moses was full of fear and trembling. He was an imperfect mediator who could not ultimately bridge the gap between the holy God and his sinful people. Now Jesus, he is the mediator of a new covenant, who as the Son of God perfectly satisfied God's holy justice through the shedding of his own blood for sin, for sinners, his own blood, for sprinkling the people of God for true and definitive cleansing to give that true and final and real approach to God Himself. Jesus, the mediator, and His blood to take away finally the distance that remained under the old covenant. Jesus in heaven itself. Moses feared even while he was on earth to approach God. Jesus is in heaven itself. The sprinkled blood of Jesus, says the word of God, speaks a better word than that of Abel. That is a curious comparison. It seems to kind of come out of nowhere. We might have expected perhaps the sprinkled blood of Jesus to be compared to the the sprinkled blood of the bulls and goats of the Old Testament, as is done, for example, in Hebrews 9. But now it is the sprinkled blood of Jesus and the sprinkled blood of of Abel. And we we wonder what is being compared, what is exactly meant by the sprinkled blood of Abel. Is it his own blood or the sacrifice which he offered to God? What does it mean that the sprinkled blood is speaking a word? Does the sprinkled blood speak to God's people or, or to God? And it is difficult to know from the text what the point of comparison and contrast is exactly. But what seems most likely is that the reference is to the blood of two persons, Jesus' innocent blood and Abel's innocent blood. We know that Abel's blood, Genesis 4, Abel's blood soaked into the ground, into the earth. 
and Abel's blood soaking into the earth got God's attention. Genesis 4, God says that the blood of Abel cried out to him from the ground. And the result was the curse upon Cain, who murdered his brother. The blood of Abel getting God's very close attention did not bring reconciliation, but brought about alienation. The innocent blood of Abel could not bring Cain near, but drove Cain away. Now the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus innocently slain, does not speak from the ground, from the earth, but speaks right in heaven itself. Something developed also in Hebrews 9. And it is blood, Jesus' blood is not blood that brings alienation from God, but close fellowship, reconciliation with God, even for those who killed Jesus. Through Jesus' blood, we are brought near, not driven away like Cain, not driven away as as wanderers and aliens. And perhaps also this aspect is included in the comparison, namely how far, see how far the work of God for his people has come since that first shedding of blood at the beginning of the old covenant, how far God has come to this shedding of blood at the beginning of the new covenant. What that blood could not do, this blood has done finally and fully and gloriously because of the coming of God's own Son. Now all of this is anyway to impress on us that the way into the heavenly sanctuary where the heavenly fellowship is, that the way has been opened up really. We don't have to doubt for a moment that the way there is open. The sprinkled blood of Jesus has God's attention all the time. This blood is in heaven itself, at the throne of God, who is the judge of all. So you you come by this way, through the sprinkled blood of Jesus, and there is nothing to fear. There is only reconciliation with God to enjoy through the sprinkled blood that speaks better, that speaks finally, definitively, opening fully the way from earth into heaven itself. Come to that joyful assembly above and fear and terror are put away forever. There is one more important point to be made out of the text. The letter to the Hebrews doesn't for a minute imagine that that we here where we are have now arrived at our final destination of worship, even though we really worship in heaven above even now. The letter to the Hebrews does not imagine that we have arrived at the, the very end of our destination of worship. In fact, the whole letter to the Hebrews could be characterized as an encouragement for the new wilderness people of God, for the new pilgrimage people of God. And here, a comparison between us and Old Testament Israel 
is worth taking to heart. Israel went through the wilderness from Sinai to Canaan with the tabernacle in the midst of the camp. It was the point of Israel's journey from Sinai to Canaan to one day trade in the tent for a temple, which would include trading in the desert for a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, getting from here to here, from Sinai to Canaan, meant to to stick closely to the tabernacle during the wanderings, the pilgrimage through the wilderness, paying careful attention to worship would mean that Israel would get from here to here, taking care of the center of the camp, paying attention to worship. Now, in fact, we know that when a whole generation of Israel did not pay attention, that generation fell in the desert. can read that in Hebrews 3 and 4. Now, it is for us in our time and our place to also finish our pilgrimage as the new wilderness people of God. And that means there is a day for us when we want to trade something in. Now, we will not trade in a tabernacle for a temple, but we want to trade in Mount Zion seen only by faith for Mount Zion seen also with our eyes, touched with our hands. There is only one way for us to come from here to there. When we pay attention to the center, when we pay attention to true worship, when we do not neglect the assembling together on the way, coming regularly in the presence of God, in the heavenly Jerusalem. It is only by us being tied to that heavenly center through regular worship in the presence of God while going through the wilderness that we will also come through the wilderness to the glory of milk and honey on the other side. Not attending to worship is making the wilderness your destination. Attending to worship is meeting God himself above in the heavenly sanctuary, a constant, repeated, weekly oasis of blessing and life, even in the desert. That's how we must keep going on the way to finally seeing and touching Mount Zion. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.